Well, y'all have name tags, but I don't. And the reason is because Mark said it would be too much Andrew on stage today. So you'll have to just deal with this much Andrew, no name tag as well. So thought that was pretty funny. Maybe it wasn't, I guess. Kind of, see, that was funny. There we go. Now we're rolling. Here we go. All right. Well, today I'm so excited to be able to share the message with you. But I want you to think about a few things as we get into the service today. So what do you think is, or what would be the biggest stage, the greatest stage, or the I finally made it stage for you? Try to picture that in your head a little bit. Let's begin by imagining that you were about to perform on that biggest stage, platform, arena, stadium, conservatory, wherever this is for you. Whichever place you find yourself, they kind of all have the same kind of structure to them. So imagine you're starting to walk in through the entrance through the hallways of the building. You can feel that you are getting steps and steps and steps closer to the big time that you think you're entering into, closer and closer to the place that you've worked extremely hard for, closer to the payoff for all those sacrifices that you've made. You are slowly walking out into the main area. You're out into the, either the field or you're on the stage now, and you begin to look around. You're in awe of the expanse, how big it is in front of you. You've never been here before. You breathe in the air. Take in all that the place has to offer. Maybe you grab the ball if it's a sporting event and you walk out to center field or you walk out to the foul line and just bounce it once, twice, just to hear the room that you're about to play in. Or you grab your instrument and you sit and you play quietly just to see how it's going to sound. Or you begin to picture that closing scene that you're going to perform in the play the next day. Maybe you go and sit in the audience's chairs just to see how they will see what you're going to do. Slowly, you walk the perimeter of the area you're in, the field or the stage, and you feel a sense of awe well up inside of you. Maybe you even begin to feel those butterflies that are going to be there the next day. Maybe that's something that you've never felt before. And that big stage moment, you can't really relate to it at all. You can't even imagine it, so let's try a different one. One area that I think we are all able to relate to is the expectation towards vacation time. I know that we have all felt what that is, and we probably call it entering vacation mode. You know, right? We got this. Where we feel like nothing will get us down now, doesn't matter what's going to come up in these last few days of work, I'm going to get through it and I'm going to enter vacation mode. I know that I've done this before, but it sometimes can end up where we did not expect it to go. I know some of my vacation mode moments have not lived up to my expectations. One example was actually a fairly big vacation when Jacqueline and I went on our honeymoon, so... That's not great that that didn't live up to expectations. We planned a route to travel. Not for the reasons you think. We are driving on the east coast of the U.S. and stopping in a couple spots in particular. We are going to a Yankees game, and they're playing the A's. Blue Jays weren't in town that weekend, so we didn't plan that out perfectly. We wanted to stop in Boston and go to Mike's Pastry and get a cannoli. We planned to take the scenic route on the way down and have some time to camp along the way. It's a big part of what we like to do. Basically doing all the kinds of things that we both loved to do. 
isn't that what we, we all strive for that in our vacations at some point, right? So we got to the campsite, set everything up, and we're ready to sit back and relax. Vacation mode. Then in typical camping fashion, it started to do what? Those of you that are campers. It rained. So typical. It doesn't matter how many times you go camping, you set up and it starts to rain. If you're lucky. If not, it rains as you're setting up. We really only had a tent for cover, and so we went and we hid inside the tent for basically the rest of the night. We finally got to sleep. Eventually, we were woken up by the beautiful breaking through of sunshine. No. By the beautiful sound of birds chirping. Nope. By the amazing smell of nature after that fresh rain. No. We were woken up by a drip. We were woken up by our tent leaking. We were woken up in the middle of the pitch black night by an ever increasingly wet sleeping bag. Can you picture this? We ended up spending the night in the front seat of our Carrie Jackshaw car Cavalier, each with a semi-wet sleeping bag draped over us. This was not a vacation mode time that met expectations for me. It was not relaxing. It was stressful as we loaded things back into the car to keep them from getting more wet. It was not meeting our expectations of a good camping trip, let alone honeymoon. It was causing the next couple of days to be more expensive for a newly married couple as we had to stay in hotels, as our tent clearly was not waterproof. Realistically, it caused me to not be able to actually enter into the place that I wanted to in the way that I wanted it to happen. You could say my entrance into vacation mode was halted and it was not meeting my expectations. So what happens when things don't meet our expectations? What happens when the biggest stage isn't what it was cracked up to be? What happens when our honeymoon isn't as spectacular as we expected it? Situation. Well, today's Palm Sunday and today Jesus does his own kind of entrance on Palm Sunday. It's described as the triumphant entry. A lot of us have likely heard this story before, or if we haven't, when we say the words triumphant entry, you can start to imagine and conjure an image in your mind of what that might look like. And this entrance is what we have been working towards so far in our series. And realistically, is what the disciples have spent the last three years working towards with Jesus. So let's take a quick look of how we actually got to this point in our series so far, how we got to Jerusalem, as we've been following Jesus and the disciples along the way, a resolute way, a specific direction, a movement towards what in the end we now call Easter. So far in this series, we've been walking through the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We've covered the way of the cross in Mark 8 where Pastor Mark encouraged us to pick up our cross and recognize that it's part of all of our walks. We've covered the way of greatness in Mark 9, where again, Pastor Mark wrote a script on greatness and recognized that to truly be great, we must first desire to serve. The way to greatness is not through comparing, but through serving. And last week, we looked at Mark 10, and we were encouraged to not see ourselves as being commanded to lack ambition because of that call to greatness, but actually that Jesus modeled the way of ambition for us. An ambition 
that does not match our selfish ambition, but one that focuses on serving others. In fact, Mark 8.33 just summarizes the basic problem of this entire series and the disciples and crowds' perspectives. It says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And that leads us to where we pick up the story today on the journey. With the crowds and the disciples still following in merely human concerns. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11, and we're going to look through verses 1 through 11. If you want to turn to that in the Pew Bible, it's on page 823. And as we work through this passage, you can follow along. This is the section that is sometimes called the triumphant entry. The section header in the Pew Bible will say, Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. These descriptions are significant to remember because of how the events actually take place in this passage. So we'll read from Mark 11, 1 through 6. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. This section reveals the disciples and their still-veiled understanding of things. That was not a random animal selection, but it was done to fulfill a prophecy about a king coming seated on a colt. It fulfills a messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. The disciples, though, they simply follow orders at this point without any excitement that would have been present if they actually recognized the significance of Jesus requesting that animal. Read on in verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of those, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. These verses continue to reveal a lack of understanding or a place where the requests and actions of Jesus do not compute in the minds of the disciples. The prophecy from Zechariah should have been something the disciples picked up on, especially when they actually were in front of Jesus as he got on the colt. The significance and the necessity for the colt and Jesus riding on it into Jerusalem don't even trigger anything in the minds of the disciples. It's seemingly completely missed here. 
This is also when we see Jesus for the first time riding on a chosen animal into a place, like a king would do. Again, we are seeing the disciples miss this. The crowds begin to form. They start cheering and proclaiming Jesus and lay out the path for him. I picture this being similar to the modern-day special event entrance. Big amounts of cheering as someone steps on stage, even when they really haven't done much in that place yet. Or even, if you're a sports person, a hometown team that comes bursting through that big paper banner as they enter onto the field. This is the type of entrance I'm picturing here. However, as we read to the end of this passage, it should be at least implicitly apparent that the expectations that were in the crowd's minds are not being met. We see Jesus arrive, he takes a look around at everything, and then leaves. Big disappointment if this is supposed to be in any way, shape, or form triumphant. And the disciples are baffled as well. We read from John chapter 12, verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it initially, at least. But eventually, they figure it out. And it goes on in 16 to say, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. They basically waited until they had the same amount of knowledge as we do right now to get it. Once Jesus was glorified, they understood what just happened. At this point is where Jesus begins to help them along and unpack and reveal the way of expectations that we should strive towards rather than what the crowds and the followers had in mind for their expectations of these moments. Following verse 16, the crowds begin to form. John 12 continues as the crowds want to see Jesus now. These crowds are referred to as the Greeks, who want to see Jesus after he enters into Jerusalem. The Greeks are there to participate, participate in the festival. These Greeks are not necessarily what we would understand Greeks to be from Greece, but it is more of a term to describe someone who's not Jewish, but is considered to be a God-fearer. They hear that Jesus is there now, so they want to interact with him. So Jesus begins to interact with them. And he starts into a monologue or teaching time for the crowds, because just on their own, these crowds clearly do not fully understand and grasp who Jesus is. This is not just a crowds thing, though, either. Sometimes we can be like that even today. We just came through Mark 11, and those who were closest to him didn't quite get it. How much more so the crowds that have surrounded him? But these crowds still had expectations, they still have preformed understandings of what Jesus should look like. And we can empathize with that too, right? We've all had times where we wanted leaders or we had leadership expectations and we just wanted that leader to be exactly who we want them to be. And that would be great. I would get along perfect with that person if they would just be exactly like me and not really who they are. These Greeks who weren't part of the followers around Jesus along the way to Jerusalem, still came and said, we want to see you. But that did not mean they were ready 
or wanted to hear who he actually was and still is. People all over the world see Jesus in this similar light. They have a similar mindset. They see him in an amazing light, similar to what the crowds are thinking here. They see Jesus as the great teacher, the great guru of self-care maybe, the leader of true social justice, or any other title that builds up. I truly don't know many people that outright hate Jesus or the things that he taught. And these are all not bad things to be associated with Jesus, but they are not the totality of who he is or what he is here to do. Jesus' teaching monologue reveals who he is, what he is going to become. It is again predicting his death. This is not new to the pattern of teachings of Jesus. We've seen Jesus do this all throughout this series. But now we finally get the important part for some of us to try to get it, the why. Why? John 12, verses 23 through 26 kind of outline that for the crowds. Verse 24 is crucial, where Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It is the telling of what the Messiah must do here. The kernel of wheat here is the Messiah, Jesus speaking about himself. The kernel will die. Jesus then, if he is the kernel, must fulfill the expectation of a sacrificial Messiah. Not what they were thinking. And he will not be the crowd-favored, crowd-expected, prototypical ruler king. Jesus will die so that his life can provide life to the world. That is what he is providing. He has been predicting his death over and over and over, but now the reason is revealed. The reason the Messiah must die is because if he doesn't, he's unable to provide life for many, to be able to provide life for the world. That's truly who Jesus is. That's what they should have been expecting. That is not what the crowds were gathered were expecting to see, though. And Jesus didn't stop there with just that why. To point, he also pointed to the crowds to provide for them a way to correct expectations in a way that will actually affect their lives as well. Verses 25 and 26 go on to say, anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be. This is tough stuff to hear in this, especially on the heels of Jesus just blowing up all their expectations of what he was going to be as a ruler and king. The crowds at this time would have heard the good things that Jesus was doing in his ministry. That's why they came to see him. And they wanted to feel inspired. Instead, they're getting the real picture of what it would mean to take that step into the realm of disciple. This means that the crowds now have to deal with the reality that they too are being asked to give up their life. But similar to Jesus, it is not without purpose. It is about gaining eternal life. Not just eternal life, but eternal life with Jesus. This is still hard for us today, though. But that does not lessen 
the, the need to follow Christ in this moment, in his sacrifice. People love the loving self-help Jesus that fits their expectations, but the real Jesus is a sacrificial ruler who asked the crowds to do the same, to become his followers. And Jesus guarantees that it's worth it because he and the Father will be alongside each of the followers for eternity, forever. And even with the guarantee of Jesus being with them, this is still something that will cause crowds in that day and today to walk away from this message. And it can still stump or even cause questioning in those who have accepted the message already. Further in John 12, the multitudes, the followers who have been there all along, understood the knowledge, the framework, at least conceptually up to this point. They had the orthodoxy down, basically meaning they had the right head knowledge. But they struggled with the next, the new expectation framework when it came to actually living it out and putting it into their lives. Jesus calls out the multitudes, the followers, the disciples that have been with him all along the journey who are struggling with this. These multitudes are those who understood giving up something, though. They understood sacrifice. These people had lives that were set up before they started to follow Jesus during his ministry. These multitudes are a good comparison to the church today. We understand, at least in our head, at least categorically what we're supposed to do but sometimes we struggle to live it out. They're thinking at this point, we get that there's sacrifice. We're here, aren't we? But did we really leave our homes for what you just explained? Did we really leave our homes so that we would also have to give up our lives? They expected the triumphant entry into a new order that was not full of oppression for their lives. But Jesus teaches the orthopraxy part the right living part to go along with the right knowing for the crowds, for the believers there. Their unbelief, the multitudes, the disciples' unbelief is like a blindness to light. The multitudes can't fully grasp Jesus, at least not fully enough to not have this unbelief here. They simply aren't seeing him for who he says he is. They can see some of who he is but it's like they have blinders on. They can't fully see anything outside of their expectations. Only the center aisle exists to me right now. But the fullness of Jesus is there. They're just blinded by their expectations of who he needs to be. They need to take them off so that they can see what Jesus proclaims in John 12, 46. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes right head knowledge in me, should stay in the darkness. Jesus is basically saying throughout this teaching that having right belief is not enough. It is a great starting point, but there needs to be change, change in action. There needs to be the removal of the blinders so that you can fully see the light that Jesus provides. Because Jesus again will lay out the why for them here, so they get it in verse 47, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge, but I came to do what? But I came to save the world. There is a judge still, though. 
But that is not the ruler to expect in Jesus here, that they were thinking he would come and judge everyone. He came to be the wheat that falls to the ground, but springs up to save many. And that is the example of those who believe are called to follow. Jesus is so much more than what we expected. The expectations of what the Messiah should be are nothing but limiters, blinders in our mind if we only think in our head. Nothing but blinders narrowing our view of the light that is Jesus. Limiting that amazing saving grace that he offers through the sacrifice. And as the worship team comes back out here with me today, I just want to provide you with these challenges. We come into situations where our expectations are not all shaped in the right way, but Jesus reveals the true way of expectations here, the way of expectation in light, to be able to see fully in him is the way that we need to shape our expectations. This does not mean that there will be no rejection in our life. It means there will be rejection. This does not mean that there won't be suffering. It means that there likely will be suffering. This does not mean that there will be no loss. It means there will be loss in our lives. But those sacrifices are ones we make because of the sacrifice Jesus made for us. And the eternal relationship we to have with him. There is joy that comes. There is hope beyond understanding. There is community like no other. There is love that knows no bounds. The way of expectations is one where Jesus, where we follow Jesus's example of sacrifice and offer up our lives so that eternal life and eternal relationship with God can be found. And sacrifice for others becomes the expectation we carry into all situations. Jesus reveals the correct expectations for a kingdom Messiah here through sacrificing his life to save the world. And he calls us to sacrifice our lives in order to gain an eternal life with him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for that understanding, for that perspective of who you truly are, the light. God, help us to remove those blinders from our eyes. Help us to truly be willing to sacrifice our life, to be able to see you fully, fully surrendering who we are to you because we know that that is what you did for us so that we may have eternal life with you God, lead us in that way. Lead us in the way. Lead us in you. God, we love you. We pray these things in your holy, mighty name. Amen.